you to turn there in your Bibles, if you've got a Bible, Psalm 94. Now, as you turn, when we moved to Arkansas, one of you gave us this copy of Charles Portis's True Grit. So this is not just a local classic, if you're familiar with it. It's a number one New York Times bestseller that's been adapted twice to the screen. And I've read it once, and I'm reading it a second time with the kids. And the book's about a young Maddie Ross from Dardanelle, Arkansas. And at just 14, her father is shot by a drifter in Fort Smith. Robs him of his life, robs him of his horses, robs him of 150 in cash and two gold, gold coins. And this sets young Maddie Ross a quest to avenge her father's death. So alongside a one-eyed, hard-drinking U.S. Marshal and a proud Texas Ranger, the three of them venture out into the Choctaw Indian Territory where they're beset with, with various trials and, and lost kinds of trails that go cold as they look for the killer. And young Maddie, despite all of it, she's undeterred, right? She will see that her father is avenged, even if it costs her her own life. Now, apart from the colorful characters in the book, right, the book appeals to us in part because it appeals to our sense of justice, of justice, the way in which Maddie's father was cowardly shot, right, the wanton disregard for life. And against all odds, we're really pulling for this precocious young Maddie to have her vengeance. So whether it's Maddie Ross, right, whether it's Edmund Dantes in the Count of Monte Cristo, whether it's Frank Castle right, from the Punisher series, whatever it might be, we're captivated by stories of vengeance because it appeals to our sense of justice, of moral order, right, of wrongs that are made right. But what about God? Is God vengeful? You know, it's interesting, what we so often admire in humans, we often view with contempt when it comes to God, right? A, a God who is vengeful, a God who exacts justice. I wonder how, how that sits this morning with your own view of God. You know, the thought of a vengeful God make, make you feel uncomfortable. But friend, if you consider the alternative, and with that, let's look at Psalm 94. If you haven't already turned, I hope you're there. Psalm 94, and I'll read through. Follow along or read along as you'd like. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked how long shall the wicked exult, or how long should they celebrate? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man 
and they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out out. Now, it's not exactly clear sort of what occasioned uh, this particular lament. You know, we, we can piece together as we read through in verse 20 as you've got wicked rulers and they're oppressing God's people. Notice in verse 6, they're especially oppressing the weakest among them, right? Widows and orphans and aliens and so forth. And many are struck by the psalm because not only is it direct, and unflinching in its characterization of God as a God of vengeance. But it's among the series of Psalms that, as we thought about last week, are proclaiming God as King. And some might say a Psalm here about vengeance and a Psalm about judgment, well, it's just out of place. But friends, how do kings rule? Any good king rules justly. He protects the weak while bringing the wicked to account which is exactly what we're seeing here in this psalm. We're being shown an aspect, I think, of God's heavenly rule as king. And the simple point being made is that God will vindicate his people and annihilate his enemies. So to all who have suffered under the hands of injustice, the message of this psalm is that God is a just God. This God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. This God doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. No, he will vindicate his people and annihilate his enemies. I think in particular, the Psalms really divided up into six different stanzas. I think each one has something to teach us about God as we endure suffering and hardship. And the first thing we need to see is that God hears. First, God hears. We see this in verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3, because notice again how the psalm opens. It opens with this guttural plea, with a cry for help. It's a prayer that God would come to his people's aid. The assumption here is, again, that God hears. That he hears the prayers of his people. Right? That his ears are bent toward their cries. Like any mother who knows their own child's cry. So God's own ears, they're tuned in, right? They're on high alert. They're always scanning and listening for the cries of his children. 
Friend, that means his, his ears similarly, they are tuned in toward your cries and toward your pleas, which means if you're in Christ, your, your cries, they never fall on deaf ears. They never burden God. They don't wear him out. They don't exasperate him. No, the astounding thing is that this God of the universe, he ever sits enthroned, eager to hear your cries, to hear your pleas. Now, in the midst of great hardship, one of the temptations is to fault God, to blame him. But notice the psalmist. He doesn't complain about God. Again, he complains to God. One of the things we consistently see in these psalms of lament. He doesn't charge God with a faulty character. He doesn't doubt God's care. And he doesn't doubt God's competence. He knows God is both good and that God is able. And he holds those two things together. And friend, that's critical. Because in the midst of hardship, in the midst of hardship, you too, if you're in Christ, you must know deep down in your soul that this God is good and he is able. The question of the psalmist and often of us is, is more one of timeliness, right? How long, verse 3, how long will the wicked exult? How long will they celebrate? Notice the question isn't if God will act. The assumption is that he will. The question is when. When will he act? So Christian, the night may feel long, but the psalm is reminding you there is a dawn that awaits, right? There is a new day that will come, not if, but when. So instead of accusing him, he appeals to him as a God of vengeance. Now, admittedly, vengeance for us often has bad connotations, as if God is vindictive, as if he's arbitrary, as if he's this sort of grudge-bearing, capricious, resentful God. And the thought of an all-powerful God nursing grudges and plotting for revenge, that's not exactly a comforting image. But friends, vengeance, it's not about petty revenge. Vengeance gets to the nature of a God who is both holy and who is both just. Vengeance is, in fact, a key aspect of God's own character. Deuteronomy 32, 35, God declares, vengeance is mine. Vengeance and recompense, right? That's, that's the Lord's domain. Nahum 1, 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging, avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. But friends, notice while it's appropriate for God, this vengeance is not appropriate for individuals. Right? Romans 12, 19. Beloved, we read, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, quoting from Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And friend, that's because whereas revenge is an act of passion. Vengeance, on the other hand, is an act of justice. So revenge, much more an act of passion. Vengeance is an act of justice. Revenge is all about self-rule, whereas vengeance rests in God's rule. Now, if you've never known great suffering, or if you think little of sin, 
you're going to have a hard time understanding this notion of vengeance. But for the one who truly understands suffering and knows sin, this God of vengeance is their only hope. But secondly, I want you to notice this God not only hears, but he cares. He cares. Verses 4 to 7. That's the second thing we see. He hears, yes, but secondly, he cares. Because notice how the psalmist appeals to God. He speaks, verse 5, of how the, the evildoer crushes your people and afflicts your heritage, or you can translate that, your inheritance. So right there, the psalmist is highlighting God's special relationship with his people. So Deuteronomy 4.20, reading from the CSB. But the Lord selected you, referring to the people of Israel, selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his own inheritance, as you are today. All right, again, appealing to the covenant relationship God has with his own. They're his chosen such that an attack on them is an, in fact, attack on God himself. And then he notes, specifically verse 6, how they kill the widow and the sojourner, how they murder the fatherless. The psalmist here, notice he's getting God's attention. Not that God was unaware, we're going to see that very clearly, but he's, he's getting God's attention, not by throwing a bunch of money around. He's not trying to bribe God or cajole God into action. Instead, what is he doing? He's getting God's attention by appealing to God's own affection, to his own compassion that he naturally has for his people. He knows that God has a special care for his own and especially the least and the the highest risk of those amongst God's people. You know, when my wife Erin, when she was a freshman in high school, she hit a rough patch and she got mixed up with some upperclassmen on the water polo team and we weren't dating and I was just a puny little freshman at the time. And these guys were big. They got their way around campus and things started to go south. They started demeaning her and they started belittling her. And it got really nasty until one day her older brother found out. Now her older brother, if you've never met him, he's tall and he's got this chiseled physique. All right, he's got like a back as broad as a car. He's got like bowling balls for for each shoulder. The guy's massive, right? And he hears about what's happening to his younger sister. So here's a guy who plays on the national water polo team. He's a beast. And one day after school, the school's letting out, and the water polo team is heading across the parking lot, and we're headed to the pool. What happens? But a car rolls into the parking lot. One brother's in the driver's seat, and the huge one is sitting on top of the back seat. And they just stroll in as half the school is watching, and he's got his shirt off. (laughs) And he gets outside the car, and he just stares at the water polo team. And he beckons his young sister, his little sister, this little freshman. He calls her to himself to get into the car and then just looks at them and didn't have to say anything. The message was clear. Don't mess with my sister. She's mine. I will protect her. And don't you dare threaten her again. Friends, God cares for his people. They're his He comes to their aid. He will defend them. But not only does he care, not only does he hear, but he knows. That's the third thing we see. He knows, verses 8 to 11. The wicked ones, at the end of verse 7, they're boasting that God doesn't hear, that God doesn't see, he doesn't perceive what's taking place. And yet the psalmist says, verse 9, he who formed the eye 
does he not see? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? Of course he hears. Of course the one who has created these things can hear and govern such things. He who disciplines nations, he says, he who teaches man knowledge, verse 10, is he somehow ignorant all of the sudden of such things? Of course not, right? He knows, God knows, and their creator will hold them to account. They think they've escaped God's watchful eye, that their deeds have somehow gone undetected, right? Unnoticed. And maybe some of you are listening this morning and maybe you're holding on to that same mistaken notion that God's not aware of your sin. You know, maybe, maybe you're young, you're a youth. Maybe you haven't been caught by your parents. Your friends don't even know. No one really knows. And whatever it is, you're getting away with it. Or so you think. And so you foolishly assume, right? You're getting away with it, all the people around you. You're probably getting away with it when it comes to God too. Friends, the psalmist is saying... Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't delude yourself into thinking that you too can deceive God. This God, he sees all. He hears all. And he will bring all evil to account. He is the judge of all the earth. You know, the Jewish rabbis would say that there are three safeguards against falling into sin that one always has to remember. First, there is an ear that hears everything. Second, there is an eye that sees everything. And third, there is a hand that writes everything into the book of knowledge, a book that will one day be opened and be read at the final judgment. This God knows. Nothing escapes him. But not only does he hear, does he care, does he know, but a fourth thing, this God, he delivers. He delivers, verses 12 through 15. And these verses really lie at the heart of the psalm. At the, and at the center of these verses is this beautiful promise in verse 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Or again, his inheritance, pointing back to the language there in verse 5. So friend, in the midst of great suffering, we're often tempted to believe that we have been forsaken by God, that some way, somewhere along the way, God forgot about us, or maybe he, he abandoned us, got tired of us, he left us, and he just moved on. But these verses assure us we're not forsaken, we're not abandoned, that he will come and he will deliver his people. As surely as he delivered Israel from Egypt, as surely as he delivered Daniel from the jaws of the lion, Jonah from the depths of the sea, or, or Peter from the Philippian jail, so this God will deliver us. He hasn't forgotten about us. He may test us, yes, he may refine us, but he hasn't abandoned us. There is a day, verse 15, where God's justice will return. Right, when the Lord himself will return on a white horse and establish justice across the earth, that day is coming. It's a future day. And until that day, the psalmist is saying, we need to accept what comes as God's discipline of us. 
what comes as God's discipline of us. We see that in verse 12. It's not punishment. Though it may feel sometimes like punishment, that's not what it is. God never punishes his people. You know, it's often hard to make sense of why the Lord allows what he allows. Right? Why does he permit what he permits into our lives? And we can get frustrated. We can think God is somehow like he's off his rocker. He just, he doesn't understand what's taking place. And we get confused and we get frustrated. But some of you will know the great scene from that 80s movie, Karate Kid. All right. You got scrawny Ralph Macchio and he wants to learn karate. And you've got this great master sensei, right? Mr. Miyagi. And he goes over to his place to learn all the ticks, the, you know, the tricks in the trade of karate. He's all excited and he goes. And what does Mr. Miyagi have him do? He has him painting stuff and waxing cars, houses and fences, wax on, wax off, sand the floor, right? Paint the fence. That's what he has him do like all summer long. And finally, like the kid's fed up. He's like, I've had enough of this. I came to learn karate and all I'm doing is being a servant and a slave to all of your needs. But of course, what he doesn't realize is that all along the way, there's been a method to Mr. Miyagi's own madness. He assumes all those tasks that he was doing all summer long, they were pointless. But Mr. Miyagi, he knew better. He knew what he was doing. All that, those activities, right? All the suffering under the sun, all the soreness of shoulder that he had, that was actually teaching him a kind of muscle memory, right? Wax on, wax off, right? Sand the floor, all, that, all those motions, the paint the fence. So what happens when they're sitting there and he blows up and Mr. Miyagi starts throwing punches at him? He knew what to do, right? You know, he does all this stuff. He knows how to deflect the punches and the kicks. I'm afraid I'm never going to hear the end. Somebody get to make a meme out of that. Don't do that, please. <laughs> Point being, he was instinctively prepared for all that was to follow. But he didn't see that in the midst of all the preparation. He had no idea that's what Mr. Miyagi was doing. Friends, so often that's how it is with us and God. Every trial is going to come through his hand. <laughs> Every trial comes through his hand. And what we often interpret as purposelessness what we can even interpret as punishment is in fact God preparing us. It's in fact God teaching us. He's disciplining us. If we're patient enough to receive it, he's disciplining us until he finally delivers us. But friends, not only does he hear, does he care, does he know, does he deliver, but fifthly, he comforts, right? He comforts verses 16 to 19. Now, of course, Christians, we're called to comfort one another in our own affliction with the comfort we ourselves have received from God, 2 Corinthians 1. Christians are to stand alongside one another. Right? We bear one another up. But sometimes, sadly, that just doesn't happen. Right? The Apostle Paul himself, there toward the end of his ministry, in prison, awaiting death, noted how in 2 Timothy everyone had deserted him. Except, he said, the Lord, who stood by me and strengthened me, 2 Timothy 4.17. And it's why, as he waited for God's own deliverance of him, he asked for Timothy to what? To bring him his books and bring him his parchments. I bring him the scriptures. Because Paul understood in that season, he desperately needed God's word to comfort him. And friend, if that was true for Paul, how much more is that true for us? Right? Verse 19, 
We read in Psalm 94, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Notice what cheers his soul. He doesn't say some binge buying on Amazon cheers his soul. He doesn't say another swig of the bottle cheers his soul. He doesn't say aimlessly surfing on Netflix for some dumb series, right? Because you've watched absolutely everything else cheers up his soul. No, the comfort we desperately need is the comfort that comes exclusively through God's word. Yes, amen. So member of UBC, in this season when we can't meet, right, when it's harder to comfort one another because we can't gather together with one another, are you turning to God's word? Are those consolations cheering your soul? I mean, I'll ask you, I mean, is there a better place you really could turn? You know, if you are in question, if you wonder, my counsel to you this afternoon, go, go open up Psalm 119. Go take Psalm 119 this afternoon and underline every blessing that comes to the believer through God's word. And you will be astounded. And I trust it will make a difference in how you think about God's word practically in your own life. Right, Psalm 119, 23 to 24. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. They bring comfort. Right, when my soul melts away from sorrow, what does the psalmist say? Strengthen me according to what? To your word. Psalm 119, verse 28. This is my comfort in affliction. Okay, what is it? Right, what's the comfort and affliction? Please tell me. Money? Sex? Power? No. That your promise gives me life. Psalm 119, verse 50. Friends, it's this word that speaks truth when we're surrounded by falsehood, that brings comfort when we're tempted toward despair, that provides peace when we're surrounded by enemies, that offers light when all there is is darkness that secures our footing, when it feels like everything around us is slipping and fills us with sweet truths in times of sorrow, in times of sadness. Friends, when we can't be comforted in the same way by one another, we can always be comforted in God's word. Friend, are you? Are you turning to this word to comfort you, to instruct you, to let it discipline you? But lastly, friends, God, yeah, he hears, he cares, he knows, he delivers, he comforts. Lastly, he avenges. Sixthly, he does avenge. He avenges, verses 20 to 23. And he avenges, right, those he goes after, right? He's, he's vengeance is toward those who, quote, frame injustice by statute, verse 20. In other words, these rulers, whomever they are, are willing to sort of legalize oppression, they're, they're happy to codify, right, into law injustice, to even condemn the innocent to death, verse 21. And they will, God says, receive their wages. They will be paid back for their iniquity, verse 22. The Lord God will wipe them out, verse 23. And just lest we doubt it, he says it again, repeats it a second time, returning to verse 2 of the psalm. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Now, a God who avenges, yeah, that's discomforting. That's even terrifying. But friends, recognize the alternative 
is even worse. The alternative to this is, in fact, even worse. A God who wouldn't avenge wrongdoing, a God who would turn a blind eye to suffering, that God would not only not be just, that God would not be loving. We would not want him as our father. We would not want him as our friend. We certainly want, wouldn't want him as God, as judge of all the earth, who rules over all. You know, it was nine years ago yesterday uh, that Osama bin Laden um, was killed. When he was killed. The, the mastermind, right, of the 9-11 terror attacks that killed so many thousands of American souls, men and women, fathers and mothers, children, daughters, all the above. And it took a decade, but he was hunted down and he was destroyed. And we understand the rightness of that action, that the one who took so much human life and continued to plot for more would eventually have to pay with his own life. We understand that. But friends, what about your own sins? What about your own sins? I think we struggle with vengeance because deep down we know that vengeance should come toward us. Yeah, we may not be a terrorist, but we do know there's a good bit of terror in our own hearts. There is a darkness. There is an evil that lurks beneath. Push hard enough, poke sharply enough, and it will reveal itself. Or like a volcano, it will explode. We too pour out arrogant words. We too boast. We sadly think we can sin with impunity. That we can live our lives like these wicked for their own benefit, even turn a blind eye to injustice. But friends, if God is perfectly just, that means we too are caught in his net. Friend, where does that leave us? Well, the promise of the gospel is that vengeance, the vengeance that so agitates and that so alarms us, that's the same vengeance that, in fact, atones for us. That vengeance that it does, it gets under our skin, it agitates, it alarms us. It is that same vengeance that atones for us because one would come who would bear the wrath of God for which this psalmist prays. The sinless one, Jesus Christ, would stand in the sinner's stead. God's vengeance toward one there at Calvary God's vengeance toward one would in fact become grace for all. All who look to Jesus Christ, repent of their sin, and turn and trust in him. Right Through the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's vengeance in fact becomes our own vindication. Right there through the cross and the resurrection, his vengeance upon sin becomes in Christ our own vindication. In the words of, of True Grit's Matty Ross, you must pay for everything in this world one way or another. This is Matty Ross speaking. You must pay for everything in this world one way or another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. You cannot earn that or even deserve it. 
we will pay for our sins unless Christ has paid them back already. Friend, which will it be for you? Which will it be for you? Let's pray. God, we pray. And as much as it gives us pause, we do give you praise as a God of vengeance, a God who judges justly and rightly and gives sin its due deserve. Lord, we pray that we would therefore flee, that we would flee to the cross of Christ, we would find our refuge there, that we might be humbled, and that you might, you might help us to see that there, as your vengeance was poured out upon Christ, there is our hope, there is our salvation. And because you are such a God, we can give up our petty, petty vindictiveness, our own frustrations, our own scheming. Lord, we look at that in a new light and we would trust solely in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.